National Day of Mourning will remember a president, but also ask how much pomp and circumstance is appropriate. As always, we'd like to hear from you on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm Laura Rice in for David Brown. Texas voters re-elected Attorney General Ken Paxton last month. So what's the latest with the criminal accusations against him? We'll check in. For most of us, black holes in the universe are a mystery. Even the experts don't know a lot, but they're getting closer to answers. Fiddle music is part of the fabric of Texas culture, but what kind of fiddle music comes to mind for you? It may be different than your neighbors. Plus a fact check flagged by Facebook. That and more coming up on today's Texas Standard. From the Red River to the Rio Grande and sea to shining sea. This is the Texas Standard for Wednesday, December 5th, this National Day of Mourning. I'm Laura Rice, in for David Brown. The stock market and federal offices all closed today. The Postal Service not making regular deliveries. State agencies also closed by the governor's orders. The movement to mark the funeral of President George H.W. Bush. The University of Houston also closed, except for exams. That city welcoming the body of President Bush one last time today before he's taken by train tomorrow for burial at his presidential library at AM. That campus closing tomorrow. UT Austin open, but its iconic tower darkened tonight with only the number 41 lighted in its windows. In this time of mourning, a lot of talk of legacy and logistics, but it occurred to me I hadn't heard a lot from the 41st president in his own words. Here he is accepting the Republican nomination in 1988. I seek the presidency for a single purpose, a purpose that has motivated millions of Americans across the years in the ocean voyages. I seek the presidency to build a better America. It's that simple and that big. Jeffrey Engel joins us now from Washington. He is director of the Center for Presidential History at SMU and author of When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. Jeffrey, you've known the Bush family for years. How are you feeling? Well, you know, it's it's a day full of memories, to be sure. I mean, it's very difficult to be too morose and sad over uh, the passing of a person at their in their 90s with mm-hmm. their family around who had a, an amazing life. But it does make us all reflect upon uh, the passage of time. And, and it's astounding to think it's 30-odd years ago that all the events of his presidency occurred. A lot has been said about the former president and his legacy over the past days. What haven't you heard enough of that you think is important to include? You know, I I think it's important to think about the ways in which George Bush um, embodied a more civil time in American politics when people, even if they disagreed, could do so respectably without being disagreeable, if you will. But at the same time, I think it's also important to, to note some of the good changes that have occurred since his time in office and since his time up the political food chain. You know, when George uh, H.W. Bush began in politics, it was basically the domain of, uh, frankly, only white men. Mm. Uh, And now we're seeing a great, greater diversity. You know, obviously, we're not fully there yet, but the type of people who stood in attendance around his casket at the Capitol in that ceremony representing the Congress look nothing like when George Bush was in the Congress in the 1960s. And and I, for one, think that's great progress. I 
was also commenting earlier that I haven't heard a lot of Bush in his own words besides some of his most memorable sound bites. Was there a, a speech or a, a memorable moment in his own words that sticks out to you? Well, I, you know, I got to say, as, as one of his biographers, uh, I like to say that words were not his friends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was not the most eloquent person. And frankly, he told his speechwriters repeatedly to take out eloquence, to tone down eloquence, huh. because he would say, it just wouldn't sound like me. It wouldn't sound authentic. Huh. Um, but I actually think his inauguration speech deserves more attention and more credit, mm-hmm. because he really laid out there uh, his sense of where the world was moving in broad, broad strokes, and in the sense that he talked about the world moving towards democracy. He talked about the world moving towards the light. He talked about the world opening up and preparing for the 21st century. And that was really a moment as the Cold War was coming to an end when the United States and democracy itself was the overwhelming popular trend around the world. And it really gives a sense of where he thought we were going and what the future might hold. How about anything more personal, an exchange that, that you had with him that sticks out? You know, I, I will never forget, um, you know, I, I interviewed him, uh, had the pleasure of interviewing him more times than I can actually count. And he always answered every single question fully, as near as I could tell, uh, with one exception. Uh, he was not interested in talking about his wartime flying service. Hmm. He was shot down, of course. He lost crew members. That's something he said that haunted him uh, throughout his days. Every day he thought about those people. Uh, and I will never forget one time I, I asked the president, you know, can we discuss what that day was like? And he looked at me and he handed me an Oreo cookie uh, and said, what else you got? Uh-huh. Uh, and the idea was, you know, not talking about that with a guy third my age. So I, I'll never forget that moment. You know, I was thinking, we haven't had a presidential funeral in, in what, more than a decade. There's a whole generation of people who are, are new to this pomp, circumstance, and just the magnitude of the logistics that go into such a remembrance. Do you think it's an appropriate recognition, despite the cost? I have to say, I, I waver on that a touch. Uh, I, I, I'm concerned about in a time when people in our country are still hungry uh, and mm-hmm. still lacking health insurance. It's sometimes it's hard to justify this. But at the same time, these are national moments of unity. And frankly, we have so they are so few and far between these days. We should always remember that the president of the United States, unlike in other countries, the president in our country is both the, the head of state and the chief executive officer, um, which is it put in English, what that means is he's basically both our president and our king. We don't have a king. So consequently, when he dies and someday when she dies, it really is a moment that we can remember the entire period that the person governed over and thereby remember that we're all in this together. Jeffrey Engel is director of the Center for Presidential History at SMU and author of When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. Jeffrey, thank you so much. It's always good to talk to you. A team of lawyers working to prosecute indicted Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton say their case is in jeopardy. After a judge ruled last month, the attorneys were getting paid too much. The team is asking for a court to reconsider the ruling. Andrea Zelensky is a state bureau reporter for the Houston Chronicle. She's been following the latest in Attorney General Ken Paxton's legal saga and joins us now. Andrea, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So refresh us here. Paxton has been indicted for more than three years now on multiple charges. What are those charges? 
He's charged with two felony counts of securities fraud and then one other lesser charge for failing to register as a securities advisor. And these charges have been hanging out there for, yeah, about three and a half years now, and he still hasn't gone to trial. Hmm. So the lawyers responsible for prosecuting Paxton, how much were they getting paid? I guess that's the issue right now. And, and who signed off on that? Well, so they had um, – this case has been so winding, which is one of the reasons why it's so complicated. Um, there was a judge out in North Texas who agreed to pay the three special prosecutors $300 an hour, which they had billed the uh, Collin County because that's who's responsible for paying that bill. They billed them back in uh, 2016. Um, and they had been paid about $200,000. But then when they billed again in 2017, the county said, hold the phone. We, we mm. don't want to pay this. Now, for a non-lawyer type, $300 an hour sounds like a lot of money. And a judge said, yeah, that is too much to be paid. But the prosecutors say that, that that's what, in the realm of, of normal, that's appropriate? Exactly. I mean, one of the things to remember here is this also has to cover their overhead costs for their um, at their offices. A lot of these lawyers or lawyers who take appointments such as this probably have like smallish firms. Um, so they have to pay their secretaries. They have to pay you know other research mm -hmm. costs. So it's not just for this individual lawyer. Um, there are other costs associated with that. Now, you say the argument against the pay comes mainly from Collin County uh, Commissioner's Court members, uh, many of whom you describe as allies of Paxton. Yeah, I mean, several members of the um, on the Commissioner's Court um, have been involved in fundraisers for um, Attorney General Paxton um, at one point or another. So, and, and also up there in North Texas, I mean, to some extent, it's Paxton country. I mean, this is mm -hmm. where he's from. Mm -hmm. This is where he's, you know, made his name as a politician for years uh, before he even got to the point where he was Attorney General. So do prosecutors have a chance at getting a court to rehear this? Or is the prosecution against the Attorney General seeming to be falling apart here? It does appear to be unraveling. I mean, the court, the court's ruling was pretty firm. However, there were three different judges who um, dissented in that opinion, and another one who concurred and dissented. So agreed and disagreed. So, I mean, it's definitely a split decision. But the special prosecutors are going to have to have quite an argument to get the court to reconsider. So, do we know what's next for the case right now? So right now we're waiting for the Court of Criminal Appeals to decide if they are going to really hear the case. And if they do, then I would expect another um, kind of long waiting period for you know new documents, for new arguments, and then for the court to opine on that. But if the court says, no, we've already made our decision, that's going to put this decision back over to the judge in Harris County, who's the one who's hearing it now, um, for him to have to set a new pay, which is going to be limited at compared to the $300 an hour, it's going to be limited to $2,000 pre-trial work, which obviously that's a big difference. Um, and if the special prosecutors aren't happy with that, what they've hinted that they, they aren't, um, they might walk, which means the, the judge is going to have to find a new special prosecutor to take on this case, which means getting up to speed and securities fraud and these registration charges are kind of complicated. So it could be a long time before... Attorney General Paxton gets his day in court. Andrea Zielinski is a State Bureau reporter for the Houston Chronicle. Andrea, thanks again. You're welcome.
Here with us now is social media editor Wells Dunbar. Hey, Wells. Hi, Laura. We're keeping an eye on the funeral for George H.W. Bush. We'll have more reactions to that historic moment later in the show. But here's another story about the presidency that has folks talking. Barack Obama hmm. has met with Beto O'Rourke as the Texas politician mulls whether to run for the White House. The Washington Post also reporting that Obama's support for O'Rourke in his U.S. Senate bid against Ted Cruz ran deeper than first thought. This is pretty interesting. The former president offered to come to Texas for a rally or record robocalls and even recorded a campaign video for hmm. the O'Rourke campaign that they never used. Huh. Lots of folks sounding off about this one on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard. There, Alex Cherry says, he's got my vote. Meanwhile, Janice Hitchcock says hopefully Obama told him that he would gain important experience as vice president. And Alan Granger says, I mm. voted for Beto, but we all need to keep in mind that many that people who voted for him voted against Cruz. So temper your enthusiasm a little mm. bit. Lots of folks yeah, debating the sort of, uh, I, I guess, whether or not what we saw here in Texas huh. could potentially be scalable yeah. and to I that sort of nationwide run. And I wonder if folks listening think that that would have made a difference for them if Obama had been more right. uh, explicit about his support. Yes or no? You can let us know. Texas Standard at uh, KUT.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice. An Austin meteorologist says this year's cedar fever season will be early and explosive. For some in San Antonio, the watery eyes and sneezing have already begun. Texas Public Radio's Brian Kirkpatrick reports on the effects in the Alamo City. With each gusty cold front, more and more hill country cedar pollen is blown into San Antonio. Under a microscope, a cedar pollen looks like a blade from a circular saw. Its jagged edges make it easy for it to stick to the mucous membranes of your eyes, nose, throat, and lungs. With this past October and September being the two wettest back-to-back -back months in Texas history, there are a lot of big green cedar trees loaded with pollen just to the north of us. However, Dr. David Hernser, an allergist immunologist with the San Antonio Asthma and Allergy Clinic, says predicting the severity of this year's cedar fever season is tricky. Sometimes they um, just put out a whole lot of pollen because they grew a lot, and that would be probably what we should anticipate this year because they got a lot of moisture, and uh, they're going to put out a lot of pollen. But sometimes when it's really dry, they actually put out more potent pollen. So uh, it's a little bit hard to predict, uh, but, I, but it is guaranteed that it's coming. Hernser says it's time to see a doctor if cedar fever symptoms such as sneezing and coughing often lead to other illnesses such as sinus infections and pneumonia. It's also good to see your doctor if you simply can't take it anymore. If it's impacting the quality of life, that uh, taking an antihistamine or an over-the-counter over nasal steroid doesn't uh, fix it, then uh, your doctor probably needs to do something else. Hernser says the worst cases can be treated by steroids. The doctor says the worst of the cedar fever season should be over by mid-January, but you'll have to wait until mid-February for the last of the pesky pollen to clear the air. In San Antonio, I'm Brian Kirkpatrick for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. 
Most of us have memories of a teacher who played a significant role in our lives in one way or another, but that relationship goes both ways. That's something we're exploring in a series called What My Students Taught Me. Today, we hear from a Houston teacher working with students learning English for the first time. The teacher, who works at the city's Pershing Middle School, discovered anger isn't always a personal thing and how time can make all the difference. Houston Public Media's Lara Isensey brings us the story in partnership with the Teacher Project at Columbia Journalism School. When Lotus Hoy started teaching English as a second language a few years ago, she felt right at home. Her own parents immigrated from China, so she had to learn English at school. And initially, when I first started school, I did not speak any English at all. I only spoke Cantonese, Chinese. And as I was growing up, it was difficult for me to continually translate for my parents who spoke no English. When her students come to Pershing Middle School from places like Central America, the Philippines, and Sudan, Hoy can relate to them pretty easily. But not last fall, when Emiliano Campos joined her classroom about a month after everyone else. At 15 years old, he was older than the other 7th graders. And Emiliano, whose family's from Mexico, was still struggling with the language. I didn't like English because it was difficult to, to read and talk. It wasn't just that English was hard. Emiliano says he'd see other students get bullied at school, or he'd be the target. There's a bad words of state Mexico or United States. He'd get frustrated, and that feeling would build up until the last period of the day when he went to Hoy's class. There, Hoy felt if she even looked at Emiliano the wrong way, he'd shut down, or worse. You could see the anxiety building up and that he was ready to shout back at me or say something in a disrespectful manner. Perhaps he would uh, throw a couple of F-bombs, even walk out of the classroom. Hoy says that disruption made it harder to teach other kids, and she took it personally. The pushback that I felt was really, really hard. It's not something that I was used to having, and I knew that in my mind something had to happen for me to connect with Emiliano. Then, a few months into the school year, something happened. Another student got in trouble and was upset. Hoy saw Emiliano go to comfort him. He was crying, and I was... I went up to him, and I was... Talking to him to like make him stop crying. When Hoy saw Emiliano show a softer side, she realized basically in a blink of an eye that no, it, it's not him. It's totally me. It had to. I had to change the way I thought about students, especially students that had anger. Later, she got another clue that Emiliano's anger had little to do with her. The class was studying the story of Anne Frank. One assignment was to draw a family tree. Emiliano drew his mom, two brothers, and sister. 
Hoy asked about his father, but he refused to draw him. I didn't want to put my dad on it. Why not? I just don't like to talk about that that much. Hoy realized Emiliano had some issues at home. Although he's hesitant to go into specifics, and she respects that. In class, she felt she needed to show patience and give their relationship time. She found that Emiliano would follow her lead. If she got frustrated, then Emiliano would too. But if I calm down myself and my demeanor, my body language, my tone of voice was able to reach out to him and connect with him in a manner that he was able to perform in class. From there, Hoy says their relationship began to improve. Emiliano started to do more of his work and pass the class. She, she taught me how to not be angry at things that can't pass by. He still had to take some summer school, but Hoy made sure to check how he was doing. Now he's back in her classroom, not as a student, but to help Hoy coach other students who don't know English. It makes me feel like I can do more things that I I couldn't do. He has now gotten to the caliber of being a class leader, a leader as an eighth grader, somebody that other students respect. Hoy says it made her really happy that Emiliano chose her class this time around. That, she says, was an honor. In Houston, I'm Laura Eisensee. This story was produced in collaboration with The Teacher Project at the Columbia School of Journalism. We're coming up on 30 minutes past the hour Texas Standard Time. The Texas Roundup is just around the corner. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas executed 47-year-old Joseph Garcia last night. He was a member of the so-called Texas Seven, a group of inmates who escaped from prison 18 years ago. While on the run, they committed a robbery on Christmas Eve that resulted in a deadly shootout with Irving police officer Aubrey Hawkins. Five of the escapees fired at 29-year-old Hawkins, killing him. Garcia's attorney said he never shot at Hawkins, but he was still convicted under the state's law of parties. Under that law, someone can be held responsible for another person's crime if they helped or tried to help commit that crime. Kristen Houlet heads the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty. She says a lot of people have ended up on death row in the state because of this law. It's my understanding that the statute in Texas on this issue is much broader than any other state. Garcia is the 12th person executed in Texas this year. The 13th and final execution is set for December 11th. Texas hasn't carried out this many executions in a single year since 2015, but Hule says despite the uptick, the use of the death penalty is down overall. Not too long ago, the state was carrying out 25, 30, you know, even as many as 40 executions in a year. So although, you know, we regret that this year has seen an increase over the last 
two years, we know that Texas is still moving away from the death penalty. On Tuesday night, Garcia's last words were, quote, Dear Heavenly Father, please forgive them for they know not what they do, end quote. A federal agency says it will retroactively perform FBI fingerprint checks on employees at a temporary shelter for migrant children in West Texas. As Marfa Public Radio's Carlos Morales reports, initial background checks were less rigorous. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says it is working as quickly as possible to conduct FBI fingerprint checks on the current staff at a Tornillo shelter where migrant children have been held since June. The Associated Press reports the background checks at first did not involve fingerprint searches. Instead, a private contractor relied on name-based checks, which are not as thorough and can generate false negatives. A government report found the name-based background checks heightened the risk that an individual with a criminal history could have direct access to children. The agency says it will include the fingerprint checks for all future employees at the shelter. Carlos Morales reporting from West Texas. More snow is in the forecast for the Texas Panhandle later this week. Alex Ferguson is an Amarillo-based forecaster with the National Weather Service. He says the area has already gotten 4.4 inches of snow above average at this point in the winter season. On average, this far through the season, we'll have about 3.2 inches of snow. So we are about 1.2 inches above um, the average amount. Ferguson says the Amarillo area is expected to see snow on Friday and Saturday. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogle for the Texas Standard. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm Laura Rice. The search for knowledge of the universe outside our planet is always ongoing. Just in the past week, we put another lander on Mars, the InSight. Because of it, we're the first humans to see a sunset on our neighboring planet. But it's much harder for scientists to study what they can't see. That's the challenge with black holes. Little's known about them. The closest known ones are thousands of light years away. Their gravitational fields are too strong for even light to escape. So there's nothing to look at. But scientists have figured out another way to detect them, using gravitational waves. And this past week, researchers announced the detection of several, helping them to pinpoint the location of a black hole. Joining me now is Dr. Aaron Zimmerman, assistant professor of physics at the University of Texas at Austin. He's one of the researchers involved in this study. Aaron, thanks for stopping by the Texas Standard Studios. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you explain in simple terms what these gravitational waves that you're using to discover these black holes are? So we like to say usually that they're ripples in the fabric of space-time, which is sort of a very poetic way of putting it. What Einstein taught us is that the force of gravity is actually best thought of as the effect of us living in curved space-time, which is really mind-bending, hard to get your head around. Mm -hmm. You often see this image of a bowling ball placed on a trampoline in some sense, curving the surface of that trampoline by its mass. Mm -hmm. And masses in the universe sort of do the same thing to the fabric of space-time. And if we now imagine rolling that bowling ball around on that trampoline, the trampoline is going to sort of ripple and shift as the bowling ball moves around. And that's a good analogy for these gravitational waves. As massive objects, especially black holes, uh, these really exotic, super dense objects out in the universe move around in, in space, they emit these ripples which can travel out and re- and reach us here at Earth. I have to say, you know, you, you mentioned black holes as being exotic, and I think that's totally accurate. I mean, it's, it's like my brain can't conceive of it. The gravitational waves, I don't know if it's just because there are words that I'm more familiar with. 
sound like something that 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 have been around for a long time that we've been able to measure for a long time but even that is very new absolutely so i think black holes and gravitational waves were as ideas kind of discovered at similar times um, but black holes we've actually had evidence for through astronomical observations for a much much longer time gravitational waves we had indirect evidence that they existed and obeyed the rules that einstein had laid out for them but uh, it was only in 2015 that they were first discovered. And the reason for this is that as they travel out through the universe, they apply really minute forces to everything they pass through. And when I say minute, I really mean absolutely, incredibly, unimaginably tiny. And so to detect the influence of these waves, to actually feel them mm -hmm. as they pass through the Earth, is extremely hard and required thousands of scientists coming together and working for decades to build the most sensitive scientific instruments by some measures that we've ever built, the, wow. these gravitational wave detectors. And only after decades of work were these instruments able to finally feel that really tiny effect of these ripples passing through the Earth. So how are using these machines to detect gravitational waves telling us something new about black holes? So uh, in order to detect the gravitational waves, the sort of um, simple way to think about it is we take laser light and we bounce them between two mirrors which are set actually a very long distance apart and by bouncing this laser light back and forth between the mirrors and eventually recombining it with other laser light you're using that laser light to measure the distance between the mirrors and as a gravitational wave moves through the earth it pushes on those mirrors very very slightly moving them together and apart and so that laser light tracks that motion and once you detect that gravitational wave it's a lot like doing any other kind of astronomy. We learn about the stars by measuring their light in telescopes. Mm -hmm. Once we see these waves, we learn about the things that made the waves. Uh, in, in, in the case of LIGO, what we've been detecting are black holes, pairs of black holes in orbit, which orbit at, at something close to the speed of light, actually, before colliding violently. Uh, we've also seen one pair of what are called neutron stars, which are also these really exotic, dense, remnants of stars which have lived out their lives and died. And we've seen one case where two neutron stars were in orbit and then collided with each other. And these kinds of really extreme systems are the ones that generate strong gravitational waves. So they're the ones that we can detect. And when we look at these waves, we then try to understand more about those objects. So we understand what the masses of the black holes are and some of their other properties simply from the waves that are emitted during this collision. So instead of, you know, sort of looking at this visually, or we're almost feeling it, right? That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. We like to talk about gravitational waves as opening up a new sense on the universe. Mm -hmm. Astronomy has been done using light and other forms of electromagnetic waves, we call them. So light, radio, they're all kind of of the same character. And all the, almost all the things we've learned about the universe has basically come from this. With gravitational waves, we've opened up a new sense. We talk mm. about it as maybe hearing or feeling the mm. universe to indicate that it really is a different way of exploring the universe, a different way of figuring out what's out there. Dr. Aaron Zimmerman is assistant professor of physics at the University of Texas at Austin, and he's helping to lead the research on gravitational waves and black holes. Aaron, thank you so much again. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a 
uh, Dan Margulies. I'm the president of the Texas uh, Festival of Texas Fiddling nonprofit, which is based in San Antonio, and I'm the artistic director of the festival. Texas is just a really interesting and uh, has the most diverse uh, regional and ethnic fiddle styles, and I really uh, just great. It's just great music uh, to play simply or to, or to play in a complicated way. It expresses a lot of emotion that that nothing else really conveys. So a lot of times people think of, of Polish music as sort of polka brass kind of uh, accordion music, but in Texas it's predominantly a string music led by the fiddle. One of the ones that I love deeply is like Somos Teclo music, which is very prominent in Texas now. Those are bands that play uh, all over Texas constantly, but they but if you don't pay attention to them, you never know. And this year we had Mopango Arbeño, which is a related style for the first time. Uh, it's related to Somos Teco, but it's slightly different, and uh, and that isn't even a new newly arrived Texas cultural tradition. I was originally born in uh, Eunice, Louisiana, and I'm currently living and have lived there for the, I guess, for the greater portion of my life in Beaumont. My father acquired my grandpa's violin after he passed away, and it was just sitting around doing nothing. So uh, I started just fooling around with it and. I got what, what help I could there locally, and I sought out other Creoles and Cajuns, and it's an instrument that you can get such beautiful sounds out of, but across the fence from that, it also makes some of the most horrible sounds <laughs> you've ever heard in your life. And I've made them all, every last one of them. Belen Escobedo from San Antonio, Texas. When they put it in my hands, it was easy to do. So that's why I just held on to it. I didn't have to think about it, it just happened. It's like breathing, it's easy, I love it. It reminds me of my great-grandparents and my grandparents. And being a kid, I would play it and I would watch them dance to it. And we'd love to go to the Guadalupe River and they would dance on the banks while I was playing. That That's a, to me, a, that's, wonderful memory, happy. In, in my culture, in my family, my, uh, my mother's side, we grew up picking cotton between Seguin and New Braunfels, working the ranches, the crops. And they were around a lot of German people and they heard this music, a lot of fiddle, violin music. So the musicians they did have, they tried to imitate what they heard. See, so, so it was like, I, I think wherever you are, Whatever culture you're in and you hear something and you like it, you try to imitate it.
The sound for that story came from the 2018 Festival of Texas Fiddling held at Twin Sisters Dance Hall outside Blanco. We heard music from Jack Phillips, Mackenzie McKeady, Austin McKeady, Brian Marshall, Raul Orduña y los Travadores, Charles Thibodeau, the Austin Cajun Aces, and Balin Escobedo. We're now at 44 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Most stand-up comedians get three, five, or maybe ten minutes a night on stage, but almost all of the comedy specials on HBO or Netflix are an hour long. Hadi Mwagdi of KERA North Texas tells us about a comedy residency in Fort Worth that's letting emerging comics stretch their legs and find their funny. open mic. Uh, I appreciate it. I will be looking at my notes at certain points of the night, but thanks guys. You guys are dope. Sharla Loriston is a comedy writer in LA. You might have heard her jokes on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or Comedy Central's Why with Hannibal Burris. But before TV writing, Loriston was a stand-up and she's hoping this week-long residency energizes that part of her career. Frankly, you're watching me trying to revive it. <laughs> like, because once you get into a writer's room, you really don't know what your schedule is going to be like. But she's looking to raise her own profile. Basically, that job is like learning the language of your showrunner. And so that's really taken my focus. And it's why I was so excited about this residency. Amphibian Stage Productions is largely known for debuting new works of theater. But recently, this residency has created a national buzz amongst comedians because it's helping comics break out. Comedians have to work under such difficult circumstances. It's one night one place, another night the next place. That's Kathleen Culebro. She's a playwright and one of Amphibian's founders. She sympathizes with stand-ups, and that's why she gives them the time they need to work things out. An hour a night for up to seven nights a week. There's no pressure, you know, and sometimes they'll come and ask me, do I have to do an hour? What if I'm short? I'm like, do whatever you want. Bring out your notes. Try that. Do it. Comedian Baron Vaughn hatched the idea for the comedic residencies. He stars on Netflix's Grace and Frankie and the rebooted Mystery Science Theater 3000. He and Calabro collaborate to bring in comedians that need a safe space to workshop material. And it's sort of like how Amphibian nurtures playwrights with their new play festival. The goal is to support new work and to develop relationships with talented people and to give them that opportunity to create something valuable. Every dude I've ever met is at least a little bit garbage. I don't know. Every dude. And I, I have a husband. I think as a wife, this is my job. You give your husband a lot of love and affection. The second job is to moisturize his skin. Um, and the third job is to make sure he knows every single day that he's a giant piece of garbage. This is freaking amazing. <laughs> like, I would not, unless I'm going to open mic after open mic, and you don't get an hour at open mics. You get three minutes, <laughs> you know? So this was great. The residencies aren't just for national talent. Local comedians get a shot, too. Dallas comedian Paolo Sparrow has opened for some of the resident comics. It, it was like one of the highlights at that point for me to get to open up for Baron Vaughn, somebody who I had looked up to and who, whose comedy I'd heard before. Pharaoh's been working for nearly seven years. He's got reoccurring gigs in Dallas and Fort Worth. That's why Culebro tapped him to book local talent. 
He says it's an important gig. There's some really funny talent here, and it's cool giving them a chance to work with some of these people that have made it or are on the cusp of like just breaking through. Past residents like Aparna Nansharla and Lisa Traeger have each been invited onto Netflix comedy specials. And they're also making regular appearances on late night shows, too. Comedian Emily Heller is now writing for HBO's Emmy-nominated series, Barry. And it's jumps like that that make this residency an opportunity not just for the comics, but for audiences, too. Reporting from KERA North Texas, I'm Hadi Mawagdi for the Texas Standard. You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm Laura Rice, in for David Brown. You've probably seen this photo. It's of a mother running with two children after tear gas was sprayed at the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, a self-declared no-nonsense website suggests that photograph was a staged hoax. Let's fact-check that. with us, Gardner Selby, on behalf of the fact-checking PolitiFact Texas Project based at the Austin American Statesman. Gardner, could you briefly describe the photo at issue? Well, it was on a Sunday in November, you will remember, the Reuters News Service distributed this photo. It shows, as you said, a woman running away from the, she's, she's running away from the border at Tijuana. Now, she's shown holding the hands of two young girls. I looked again today and noticed that there is some canister right behind them and there's something white coming out of it. Uh, that same afternoon, U.S. officials at the border responded to a surge of immigrants by firing, they confirmed, tear gas in that direction. I, I pulled up the photo, too. One of the children is actually barefoot, the other in flip-flops and a diaper. Yes. So the context matters here, that being the U.S. government said it was concerned about too many Central American immigrants among hundreds, of course, we've heard of over the weeks, who had been hiking in a caravan. They say these people were inappropriately rushing the border. Right. Okay, so who said what about the photo not being real? David Harris Jr. He describes himself as a no-nonsense entrepreneur, reacted to the photo by saying in a web post that it was a staged hoax. After all, he suggested, various individuals can be seen in the background holding cameras, TV cameras, still cameras. Harris wrote that it's clear that some immigrants were even pausing to pose. He went on, these are his words, in other spots of the photo, people are just standing around calmly with no sense of urgency whatsoever. He closed out his analysis, the woman with the children was just a photo op. As in a photo opportunity. Yes. Has this gotten a lot of attention, I have to ask? I mean, is this something that it, that it gained momentum? People saying, yes, this is a hoax? I mean, is that is that going around? It got enough attention where Facebook, which partners with PolitiFact and other fact-checking organizations, noted it and, and alerted the fact-checking groups, hey, this might not be an accurate statement. Okay, so let's do the facts then. You already attributed this widely seen photo to Reuters. That's a respected international news organization. Correct. What else did you rely on, though, to check the claim about the photo being a hoax. Samantha Putterman of PolitiFact put stock in a news story that came out after those moments. It came from BuzzFeed news reporter Adolfo Flores, who interviewed the woman, the mother. Oh, so the mother actually pictured in the photo. What did the reporter learn from that woman? Her name, Maria Mesa of Honduras. She told Flores that she and her twin daughters had been standing near the fence when Border Patrol agents fired 
tear gas canisters in that direction. The fact, though, that the tear gas was fired is confirmed? Mm-hmm. Customs and Border Protection, that's the agency responsible for border law enforcement, said that people fired tear gas and pepper balls at the immigrants at the border after some individuals tried to cross into the country through an opening. This is what the agency said, with some migrants even throwing rocks. So back to this uh, Meza, the one mother right. in this photo. Did she tell the reporter about her decision to run away from the border with her children? Flores quoted her saying this, I felt sad, I was scared, I wanted to cry. That's when I grabbed my daughters and I ran. I thought my kids were going to die with me because of the gas we inhaled. Do we know why Mesa was standing next to the border with her children in the first place? She told BuzzFeed News that she was only looking across the border with other folks from the caravan uh, when that tear gas was launched. And here's some more from her. One of her daughters lost her sandals in the mud. One of her sons almost fainted from the gas, although he recovered, she said, after she threw water on his face. Anything more we should know about all this? Well, BuzzFeed News posted a photo of Meza taken by Flores, shows her sitting with four of her children in the Tijuana Stadium that has been temporarily housing migrants from the caravan. Okay, so back now to David Harris Jr. He's the entrepreneur who claimed this was a hoax. Did he offer any evidence that the photo was staged? I looked again. He has stuck with his speculations about activities, the activities that he noted going on in the background of that photograph. So how did this claim then come out on the PolitiFact truthometer? U.S. officials did fire tear gas across the border, and it's been, and it's been confirmed that the mother shown running from that scene with her children was among affected people. The photo was not staged. It was not a hoax. Yetters reached the rating of incorrect, ridiculous, pants on fire. All right. Pants on fire is the ruling from PolitiFact regarding a claim that a photo of a mother and her children running from tear gas at the border was staged. Gardner Selby is with PolitiFact Texas. Gardner, thank you. Good to be here. And you're listening to The Texas Standard. And back with us now in the Texas Standard Studios, Wells Dunbar, watching all things social media today. Hi, Laura. Yes, incredible scenes at the funeral for George H.W. Bush. Uh, obviously, uh, an important uh, funeral to uh, those folks in Washington. And just the scenes you're seeing mm-hmm. of all the people in attendance uh, before the funeral started, you just see all, everyone lined up. Uh, Barack Obama, Michelle Obama. Uh, you see Dick Cheney, Lynn Cheney in the mm-hmm. background. Uh, and then, of course, our current president, Donald Trump and Melania Trump showing up. Uh, very interesting, and lots of folks are just uh, remarking on the scene there. That's what we're seeing in Twitter. In Austin, Nicole Sundquist says, I love how all the past presidents have come together united to celebrate what she calls an amazing president. And James Martin Lee, he says W is going to be upset that they split him and Michelle Obama up today uh-huh. for the funeral service, obviously alluding there uh, to those, uh, I guess, stolen moments that right. the two of them exchanged uh, in a previous previous incident. Yeah, oh. I guess. So it was at, at John McCain's funeral. That's correct. Uh, but apparently just the, the protocol of, of sitting, had them sitting next to each other like quite, quite a bit over the past, yeah. you know, several years. And they've you know, become friends. You know? Obviously, this is a different case because uh, it is his father who is mm, being laid mm-hmm, to rest. Mm-hmm. And so he came in uh, with the casket earlier. Lots of people noting that sort of change in decorum that occurred. They had a live feed up of uh, everyone sort of joking and talking. Uh, and then President Trump shows up with Melania Trump and the mood seems to quiet a little bit. Joshua Moore tweets that you could cut the tension with a knife. How he described that uh, scene of uh, the current president with all the ex-presidents. And Texas Latino 
Cena. She tweets, The Bush family had to bring their own president to eulogize 41 at the National Cathedral. Traditionally, the sitting president does it. Hmm. So talking about W there, uh, that they brought their own president, is that what that, is that, what that referred to? Because, I think so. I mean, I think it's appropriate, though. I mean, like yeah. that, his son. I mean, that's it's 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 a uh, you know it's sort of an unusual circumstance we haven't had obviously a Definitely, father son yeah. president. So. Yeah, not in quite some time. I right. believe there is one uh, past incident. Oh, but, do you not know. make me pull out that <laughs> trivia hat. <laughs> oh, I'm, sorry I'm not going to do that. well. It's not the Roosevelts. They weren't related no. that way. But anyway. okay. Well, ding ding ding. Maybe our Adam? Texas standard listeners can uh, can call on can uh, tweet us with with the hurry, correct answer hurry, yeah. and get a coffee cup out of it. Are you listening? <laughs> You listening there? Moving along, uh, that story I mentioned earlier, the uh, fascinating uh, meeting between Beto O'Rourke mm-hmm. and uh, Barack Obama portending a potential presidential run. Lots of folks sounding off about this one. Interesting perspective here from Elizabeth Joe Green in Dallas. This is about how he didn't use that Obama endorsement mm-hmm, that was taped. Mm-hmm. She said, while Obama was well-loved by Democratic Texans, I doubt it would have done much to flip PO'd Republicans or independents away from Cruz. Right. That job was on Beto, and he did it well. So, yeah, lots of folks talking. Is this going to be what's, you know, I, I think even with or without O'Rourke, it's going to be what, like about two dozen Democrats in the field there mm-hmm. for president? So, well, um, We'll have to see. We will be watching in Wells Dunbar. We'll be watching everything online. You can tweet us, find us on Facebook, send us an email, and see you back here tomorrow. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Holdridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. R.I. Public Radio International.